So 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 8. But before we get into verse 8, I want to look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, which was our memory verse for the morning. Matthew 23, 11. We all know that Jesus said he came here to serve and not to be served, right? So in Matthew 23, 11, he tells the apostles, um, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, this is the main focus of what this passage of Scripture is all about, being a servant. And, and you may say, well, James, this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, it's speaking of deacons. And you are 100% correct. That word deacon, diakonai, it means a servant, a humble servant. Now, that's a position in the church, and that is something that... Um, we all need to understand that this is a, a place in the church for people to serve and, and take leadership positions. But this applies to all of us in the way that we're all called to be servants as Jesus Christ was a servant. We're all called to serve one another. That is what the body of Christ is supposed to be about. Serving one another in the name of Jesus Christ. In the love and compassion of, of the Spirit. So, Let's read through, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children with their own and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and a great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Amen. So, deacons, servants. It, start, it starts out by saying, likewise, deacons. And anytime you see something like likewise or um, also or anything like that, anytime you start a portion of Scripture that way, you have to look at what was spoken about before this. And what's being spoken about in verse 7 First Timothy chapter 3 is us having a good testimony among those outside and inside the church. So read with me. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So we are called to have a good testimony among those outside. And we're going to 
we're going to look at what that means specifically in regard to being a servant, a deacon in the church. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we living a lifestyle that lends to a good testimony among those outside of the church? When we walk around in our places of business or where we go to have fun in our in our realms of, of friends, um, are we walking around with the testimony of Jesus Christ on us? Do people say, when, the, when we do things, do they look at us and what we're doing and say, wow, that really represents Jesus Christ in a proper way? It's funny, when you look throughout the Gospels and you look at Jesus' life, something you see about his life is that you saw two groups of people in regard to how they react to him. One group was in awe. Oh my goodness, this man is just, he's true, he's loving, he's kind, he's everything I desire to be around. And there was this other group, this group of religious fanatics that hated him with a passion, wanted to kill him, wanted to shut him up. So my question for you in regard to this, our testimony to outsiders, does our life bring a testimony to people outside of which they either want to corral around us because of the love and gentleness we show or hate us because of the very holiness and truth that's within us? Because that is something that should define us as servants of God. Our lives represent Jesus, represent him in a way that he represented himself. Remember, Jesus said that we would do greater works than he even did. Speaking of the testimony that the Holy Spirit would have in the lives of his entire church. We need to be that representation. So Paul, speaking to his young protege, says, likewise, deacons must be reverent. So, a deacon, again, we, we talked about this meaning servant. It means one who executes the commands of another. A, a man who is called to be a deacon, a woman that's called to be a deacon, and yes, um, we're going to talk about that. Can a woman be a deacon? Uh, absolutely. Um, they're called to be reverent. The word reverent there, it means uh, to worship God with your mouth. And the idea in Judaism was your conversation. Anytime you said your conversation is such, you're speaking of their actions, their attitudes, everything that explains who they are. So to worship with your mouth does not simply uh, mean what comes out of your mouth, the words, the language, the songs. We see this in Matthew chapter 15. If you want to turn with me, Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 4. Matthew 15, 4. It says, For God commands, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, 
Whoever say, says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he needed not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the command of God of no effect by your tradition. So Jesus is correcting the, the, the Pharisees saying, look, God has said this, and you are changing what God has said in the, in the, the scheme of religion. Saying what you give to God, you don't have to give to your parents. You don't have to take care of your parents. Jesus continues in verse 6 by saying, Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your traditions. Verse 7, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me, with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The worship, the, the word worship there is the same word. The same word that, that um, is spoken about in 1 Timothy. Reverence. To worship with your mouth. It's, it's more than the words that come out of our mouth that matters. It's the conversation of our life. It's said that conversation is 90% action and 10% words. And it's funny being married now. I've been married for quite a few years now. And, and hanging out with my wife, she could say something like, I love you. And she could say, I love you, as she turns her back to me and, you know, gnarls her teeth. And I know what she's saying. Yeah, I love you. She's mad at me. It's not just the words that come out of our mouth. It's the actions of our lives. So in order to be a servant of God, a deacon holding the position specifically, we must be reverent. Reverential in our attitude, in our actions, in our conversation. Continues. Not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. And that's a, a strange idea. What pops into my head is a snake tongue to feelers, but not double tongue. What it's speaking of is simply not saying something to someone in one situation and place and saying something completely opposite to another person. Our tongue should not be double-sided. Lately I've been reading these books on um, the early, the Revolutionary War early parts of the Revolutionary War. And uh, a portion of the book was talking about a young man who was actually, uh, he's called a Tory. And I don't know if you guys know what that is, but a Tory was someone who still uh, 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 holds England as their, their master, their king, their, their nation, yet they live in America. So a young Tory man was captured by the revolutionaries, the rebels as they're called. And... Um, he was treated well and eventually released. But in his time with the rebels, he wouldn't give them information about his leadership, about his command, about any of his military. And he said that he wouldn't do it out of respect of his command. So then when released back to England, the Redcoats, um, they asked him the same questions. Tell us about the Americans, where they're staying, how they're living. And he said, I will not share that information with you guys either because I had told them that I would not. 
You see, he was he he lent his his uh, whole self to England. Yet he wasn't double tongued. He wasn't willing to release information about either army because of his pledge. He was truthful in what he had to say. The question is, are we double-tongued in what we do, in what we say? Do we act one way with one group and act a different way with a different group? And I can tell you, in the American church, this is, this is prevalent. This is something that always happens. You walk into a church and they're like, Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Welcome. And then you walk by their car as they're leaving the church and they're yelling and screaming at each other. Are we double-tongued? Are we gracious and kind with one another? Are we allowing the gifts of the Holy Spirit to truly change us from the inside out and and change our interactions with one another wherever we're at? My dad, uh, he's a he's a pretty awesome guy, but he there's a there's a thing said about him in every group that he's in. And I worked with all of his friends. He retired from a company, and I worked I went and worked for the same company. And the same thing I always heard about my father is, what you see is what you get. It's true. What you see is what you get. He's not going to act any different here than he does at home. And then I went, me and him went to the same church for a little while. He still goes to my home church back in California. And when you go to the church, you know what they say about him? What you see is what you get. <laughs> Sometimes that's not a good thing. Sometimes that's an amazing thing. But his life is not double-tongued. The expectation from him is Archie. It's, can that be said about us? What you see is what you get. What's coming out of his mouth, yep, that's, that's who he is. That's, that's the person. And not to say that we can't have changes in our lives, that, that things can't mature and grow and we can't learn. That's not what, what's being spoken about here. Because we could say one thing and then learn, holy moly, I just messed up. I should have never said that and, and fix that. But the, the thing is, is, does your life, your conversation, is it double-tongued? Is it separate, distinct, in different situations? Are you on the job site cussing and swearing and then come to church and have nothing but praise in your mouth? We need to be those who are not double-tongued. Then it says, not given to much wine. And this is where a lot of men in the church, men and women in the church go, see, you could drink. Proof. So the conversation of alcohol, what does that look like as a Christian? And I, I think that there are three different parties when it comes to this. And I think we need to be very careful with our conversation about alcohol, especially with our kids. And I, I want to kind of illustrate this for you in a way that, that makes it really easy. I'm a pastor. I know from just a couple of uh, sections before this, it tells pastors that they cannot have one. No alcohol. We're not supposed to drink. So I have instilled in my children. I have four children. Most of you know, but some of you don't. All four of my children know, Daddy, psh, no alcohol. And in Daddy's mind, alcohol is no good for no reason. So we uh, went out to visit my dad in California, and um, we went to his house, and we stayed in his house for three weeks. What was that, last year? June and July? 
and uh, had a great time, amazing time. And my kids and I went, we were about to walk out of the garage door and walk out to the cars. And we opened the refrigerator to grab some sodas. And inside of there, there's alcohol and there's beer. And there's so one of my kids grabbed a blue can that said Bud Light. On the other shelf, there was a blue can that said Pepsi Cola. So he grabbed the Bud Light. And I said, no, 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 put that back. Don't open that. And he said, why? It's just a soda. And I said, that's not a soda. He said, what is it? I said, that's a beer. And he said, why does Papa have beer in his, in his refrigerator? And I said, well, you know, some Christians, they drink. And he's like, so wait a second. Is it okay for you to drink? I said, no, it's not okay for me to drink. Why not? Because I'm a pastor and I have influence on people's lives and it's a really bad thing to be in front of a bunch of people that, no, some of them may have alcohol problems. And he said, so Papa doesn't have influence on people's lives? I said, yeah, actually he does. He said, so what's the difference? I said, just put it back. Let's go in the car. So there was no way, I didn't know how to, there was no way around it. Look, the, the, the question as a Christian isn't, can I drink? We know, Paul the Apostle said, we're free, we're open, we, we're not bound by any law. Drinking alcohol is not going to send you to hell. That's not what this is about. It's not about can we, it's about should we. Do we what kind of influence do we want to have on the people of this world? You know, it, it's funny, ever since my accident, some of you know I was in an accident, I should explain that. I was in an accident in January, January 15th, and I probably should have died. Pretty bad accident, drove about 30 feet off a cliff in the trees. Ever since my accident, I've had to question, Lord, why am I still here? Like, I got in a car accident that most people who get in way less car accidents die. Why am I still on earth right now? And the Lord plainly said to me, you have work to do. You know what that tells me? That we all have work to do. We're not promised tomorrow. The very breath that we take isn't promised to us. Can we do things? Of course you can. But why? How are we fulfilling our purpose as brothers and sisters in Christ on this earth? What's our purpose here? Shouldn't we be trying to bring people into the fold, get them into heaven? It says here that deacons should not be given too much wine. Continues, not greedy for money, or as the King James says, for filthy lucre. If you want to be in ministry, if you desire to serve people, I'm going to be honest with you, you're not going to get rich. There's a cost to taking care of one another. And that cost sometimes looks like time. That cost sometimes looks like finances and money. Are we willing to give up for the church of God? Are we willing to give up for the people of God? That's a true question. It's, it's funny. I, in my own life, 12 years of ministry, I've thought, man, if I just got a second job, I could just make our finances so much easier 
If I just work another eight hours a day, I could do it. It's not a problem. And then the Lord said, well, what about serving at the church? What about cleaning up floors and taking out trashes? Who's going to do that, James? There's a cost to service. But we have to, we have to resolve that in our own hearts, in our own minds. Am I going to allow the cost of service to overcome my love of things? And we need to make sure that that is the answer, that I'm not going to be greedy for filthy lucre. Now, that doesn't mean that no Christians are wealthy. I know lots of wealthy Christians. I'm from Southern California. There's wealth abounding from where I'm from. And I could tell you every one of those Christians that I know that has a large amount of wealth, that their gift to God is giving. And it's amazing because you see them give massive amounts, not just of money, but of their time, of all these things, and it keep coming back to them. They keep receiving as they keep giving. I thank God that I don't have that gift because I would struggle. I'm like a squirrel. I just want to hoard, like oh, put it in this account and save that for when it's raining and put it over here and save that for when it's raining. I thank God that that's not my gift. I would fail. But I know others who have huge amounts, huge bank accounts, and oh no, take this, take that. This is for here, this is for that. Oh, the church needs that? Here, take this. It's, it's an amazing thing. But again, I think it, it has to do with the heart. Here, we shouldn't have a heart that is greedy for money. It's a love of money that is a cause of all kinds of evil. It's not having money. It's a love for money. Continuing. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So, question. The mystery of the faith. What is that? Mystery, the idea, something that was hidden, that now has been revealed. That's what the word means. It's not a mystery as in not something that you cannot understand. It's, it's something that was once hidden and now is revealed. The mystery of the faith. It's that faith saves us. Do you hold that with a pure conscience? That you're saved by faith, not by any other thing. That your faith in Jesus Christ gets you into heaven. That, that your works, although awesome, that you have works. That's great. That's a healthy thing to have works in this world. But your works in regard to your salvation are worthless. That I am saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That as long as I believe that he's my Lord and Savior, I have entrance into heaven. That's not tainted by anything else that makes you think you could get to heaven in any other way. This is something that is demanded of us as servants of God. This is an essential that we are saved by faith, the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. Verse 10, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. A couple things to that, uh, that portion of Scripture. 
Let them first be tested. Now, this is a hard thing because very often if we have a desire to serve in the church, we come in and we just want to be put into a position. And I've, I've found, being part of several different churches in my past, that people walk in and say, hello, I'm deacon so-and-so or I'm pastor so-and-so. And they expect, some of them, not always, but some of these men expect reverence because of a title. When truth be told, what's expected out of them is attesting beforehand. When I first came back to this church, some of you know my history, some of you don't. I'm from California, met my wife in Bible college, moved here, was a youth pastor for three years, moved back to California for about four years and served in, the church, in several churches out there and then came back here. And when I first came back, it was like coming to a different church. There was a bunch of people that I didn't know some, a bunch that I did, but a bunch of people I didn't know, and they didn't know me. But because I was coming to this church with a title, associate pastor, because, well, my father-in-law knows me and all the people in leadership know me, that was a very uh, weird and kind of offensive thing to some people. Very awkward to some people. Well, who is this guy? What, you know, what is he, oh, pastor of blah, blah, we don't even know this guy. It took time for me to serve, to love, to, to show who I am for people to open up to me. And it's funny, living in Maine now, this is the culture of Maine. They don't want you to say who you are. They want to see who you are. Oh yeah, you're, you're a carpenter? Prove it. Let's see it. I remember working with Jason on something. And I'm like, yeah, I, I could do some carpentry. And then I saw him work and I went, no, no, I'm not a carpenter. No, not like that. That dude's a carpenter. Prove it. To be tested. And it's another thing. Are we offended when people test what we are made of? We shouldn't be. That's a good thing. A test is just to prove what you know, right? At least that's what I was told when I was in high school. Are we offended by being tested? We shouldn't. When people are doubtful of, of what we are, who we are, that's a good thing. Let me show you. Let me prove it to you. I remember when I got saved. And I, I was an idiot before I was a Christian. I struggle still. But I got saved and I had abused my father. Not physically, but I abused him. Mentally, emotionally, even verbally sometimes. And my stepmom wanted nothing to do with me. She thought I was the scum of the earth. She was right. And I got saved. And I told my, my father and her. And uh, my dad was crying and excited. And my stepmom, on, on the other hand, said, I don't, I don't believe you. You said similar things in the past. What makes you different this time? And then I served in the church for six months, just cleaning, washing uh, different parts of the church and being involved in Bible studies because I was on fire for Jesus. And and uh, about six and a half, seven months, I started serving in the youth ministry. Three, three months after that, I was a youth pastor. A little over a year, I'm a youth pastor in a church. She's still like, mm, I still don't believe you. Not because your actions now, but because your actions in the past. It took two and a half years for my stepmom to go, no, you're a Christian. I, yeah, we're... We're on the same page now. 
And me and my stepmom are closer than most people in my life. That's not an offensive thing. That's an exciting thing. I get, I get to live out for Jesus this thing that I say that I am and show people the truth. It's not a bad thing. Let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Let their actions be found without, uh, uh, without a, a condemnation. Not that there aren't things to, to call into account, but that they have reasons. Now, my question in, in regard to our lives, do we live blamelessly? Do we truly live a lifestyle of blamelessness? That is something we're called to as Christians. Holiness, blamelessness. Now, that doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, by the way. Not, that's not what we're talking about here. Do we do things with honesty and with the correct heart? We're going to make them... We're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up and have mishaps. But do we do it for the right reason? That's the question. Do we do it for the right reason? Why did you do that? Because I meant for this to go good, but it didn't go good. Okay. Servants, uh, servants must be found blameless. Same thing as a pastor. Verse 11, likewise, their wives. So this is where we get into some murky water here. If you notice in your Bible, it says there in italics. It's because it's not there. Likewise, wives must be reverent. Well, what is this speaking about? Well, there's different ideas on this. Some believe that this is speaking of the wives of deacons, which, okay, I agree. If a man takes a position in a church, he should have his family in order, so his wife should be this, no problem. But it's also possible that it's speaking of women who serve in the church. And there are, very, there are a lot of people that get very uncomfortable with that because we know from 1 Timothy that women aren't supposed to hold positions of authority and they're not supposed to be teaching men. But here, at least as it seems, there is room for a woman to be a deacon in the church. And you might say, we'll prove it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16. Verse 1, Romans 16, 1. says, I commend you, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church at Centria. The word servant there? Diakoni. I commend to you, Phoebe, or Phoebe, who, our sister, who is a deacon of the church of Centria. Verse 2 that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. This young lady is the one that brought the letter of Romans to the Roman church. A young lady in some position of authority. 
with the idea that she is a servant of the church. So, likewise, wives, their wives, deacons' wives, women who are called to leadership, servants in the church, how about we just put it that way? So any of us must be reverent. Same word. Same word used for deacons. They must be reverent. They must be worshipful with their conversation. Not slanderers. And the word there is false accusers. Not not false accusing people. And it's funny, this word is used for Satan several times throughout Scripture. Not speaking evil of someone for no reason. False accusers. Temperate. The word means clear-headed. Faithful in all things. This is something I feel like our culture and our church, not Calvary Chapel Down East, but our culture's church, the American church, is lacking in. Are we faithful in all things? When we say that we're going to do something, that we're going to accomplish something, do we fulfill what we've said? Or do we say things in turncoat? Do we say things and not actually fulfill the promises we make? We need to be faithful in all things. If we are given a position in the church, if we're given a task in the church, if we're given a task at work, are we faithful to complete it? I was at work last week, and I was out blowing sand off of our drive. I'm a director at a uh, medical facility. Uh, I'm in charge of maintenance and environmental services. So I was out blowing the, the sand because one of my guys wasn't there and just blowing the sand and cleaning up. And it started raining. And the director of nursing came out and said, James, what are you doing out here in the rain? I said, I started blowing sand. And if I leave it, it's going to get everywhere. So I need to clean this up before I, get, before I leave today. I just This has to get done. And it's raining. So that's life. I have to be faithful to fulfill this thing. Otherwise, it's going to be way more messy. Are we faithful in all things? Is our life one that people, I, I hate to bring him up, and I'm so glad he's not in here today. I asked him, are you going to be in here or are you going to be upstairs? John Sear. When I say that name, if, you, if you're church family here, and I say John Sear, most of you go, oh yeah, the faithful guy. I mean, you could call him, I literally, hey, I, I need you to teach, when, right now, all right, I got something, I'll figure it out, you know. He's a master sergeant for the air guard. People salute him as he walks on to, to base, and he comes in here, and he's just goofy John, Mr. Faithful. Is that our life? Is that what defines us people know that they can rely on us no matter what the circumstance no matter what is asked of you faithful in all things this is what deacons and deaconesses are called to servants of God that's what we're called to be faithful in our actions verse 12 
Let deacons be the husband of one wife. And we spoke about this last time I was here, last time I taught on pastors. What does that mean? Several different views. Um, Some believe that it's husbands of one wife ever, that they could never remarry if their wife were to die or leave. Some believe that um, it's speaking of a one-woman man, which is actually how it's written, that he'd be a man that is loyal to one woman. Some believe that it's it's not even true. I, some pastors around have had ex-wives and ex-wives and ex-wives, you know. Um, I have been in a circumstance where I started a church uh, in California with a gentleman that I didn't know his marital history. And uh, it was in my ignorance, and, and I should have asked, but he had been married four times before uh, as a Christian. And we we started this little group that turned into sometimes 100 people. It was a big church uh, plant, church start. And he was single at the time, so I just thought he was on fire for the Lord. He was like 50-something years old, and, and he ended up getting himself in a horrible situation with a very young girl. Um about, I think, 20 years old, 21 years old. And after hearing that, I go and I look into his past and come to find out he's had four wives as as a pastor, as a a Christian, and, yeah, and several kids from all of them. And it, it really just showed me in my life, wow, this is why the Lord has this commendation. This is why the Lord has this requirement for deacons and pastors in the church. If a man is a one-woman man, if he has his eyes and his mind set on one woman, he's not going to be blinded by anything else, by lust, by anything like that. You know, we look at the Catholic Church today, and I, I don't want to bash on them, but we see priests. I mean, how many priests were just revealed that they have priors with children? This is a a horrible, horrible stain on any church, whether it be the Catholic Church or, or Christianity. This is why the Lord says a man should be married to one woman, one woman man. If you want to make that requirement married only once ever, that's fine with me. It doesn't bug me because that's what I'm going to be. But if you want to say that he's only been married once, as in his wife could have left and he he remarried through biblical reasons, because the Bible does give us two reasons to be divorced biblically. The first being uh, if an unbeliever leaves because they disagree with you, you're not responsible for that. The second is death. It's not divorce, but you could remarry after death. That's fine. I know pastors, great men, who their spouses have died and they've remarried and they're still one-woman men. But we, we need to understand how serious that is. There's a reason why that rule is set out for deacons and for pastors. So they don't get mixed up. So they don't get lost. And I could tell you personally, with my eyes set on this one woman right here, this one, 
She's able to, to say, James, you're messing up. You didn't do this right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. My eyes are on her. She's able to help me through this, this wonderful life of ministry. Let them be husbands of one wife. Another, you know, another thing that people teach is that in the culture it was okay to have multiple wives, right? And that's, that wasn't okay for a Christian. I don't think that that's what it's speaking about. Then it says, ruling their children and their own houses well. Ruling their children and their own houses well. And this is another one that's very murky. I mean, if, if a pastor's kids are crazy, does that mean he's disqualified from ministry? Could be. It might not be. The idea that's given to us here, that word ruling there, it means uh, toward establishing. What it's speaking about is if a man is called to pastor or to deacon, or if you're called to be a servant of God in the church, that your lives should be in uh, ones in which you're taking your children and you're establishing them toward Jesus Christ. That you're building a foundation in their life and you are every day discipling them towards Jesus. Now, there comes a point in our children's lives, most of you know, where they make choices. And they're choices you would not make and you desire for them not to take. As long as you've been establishing them towards Jesus, you've been doing your job. They're at some point responsible to Jesus Christ. Understand that. I know pastors whose kids raised Christian homes, went to Christian school. Before they're 18, seem like amazing kids. They get out into the world and boom, explosions. And then they're like, oh, i got to step down from ministry because my kids are out of line. No, you don't. They have to speak to Jesus Christ about their actions. You've established them towards Jesus. Ruling their children in their own house as well. Verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and a great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So, a question I've been asked several times by many people in my time in ministry is, James, how do I become more bold for Jesus Christ? How do I gain boldness in my conversation with people outside of the church? Because when I'm at church, I can do the Jesus talk all day long. But I go out to my place of work, and I can't get the words out of my mouth. How do I obtain boldness in my conversation? Scripture just told us right here. If you serve well as a servant, as a deacon in the church, if you're serving in the church, if your heart is all in, this is why I always encourage people, get involved. Do stuff in the church. You want to, get, you want to be on fire. You want to have boldness in Jesus Christ. Just start serving. Because once your heart's given in, it's easy. It just flows. I talked to some guys about politics. And some of them are all in. They're all about politics. And they could talk about politics all day long. And, and how this governor. And, that, and, then, and then some guys, I could go, hey, NFL, I could just say those words. 
and they have all this knowledge. Bleh, you know, they puke all over you, whatever their team is. Usually the Patriots in this area. Oh. Yeah, I'm a Green Bay fan. Yeah, I'm with you. Sorry. Now you all shut your ears. I know. I'm sorry. You know, what we give our hearts fully to, what we give ourselves fully to, we're going to be able to talk about these things. Some guys' guns. You know, I could talk to guys here about guns all day long. Outdoor survival. Me and Jason, last week I told him, hey, man, I really want to learn more about, like, bow hunting and doing that outdoorsman thing. And he was like, yeah, and he had all this information. He's all about it, you know. But if we give ourselves fully to the service of Jesus Christ, if, if we're all in in our service to one another, boldness is going to fly. It's going to be natural. A few weeks ago, I was driving around, driving around in our work van, going to pick up our other work van. And this young lady that works with me says to me, Hey, James, are you one of those 99.3 kind of Christians? And I was like, I have no idea what that means. What is that? She said, it's the Christian station around here. And I said, I, I didn't know that Christian station. Huh? So I guess not. What is, what is that Christian station? She said, oh, it's just, you know, worship music and, and gospel songs. I said, I listen to some of that. I listen to other things, lots of Christian, different Christian types of music. And she said, well, then what kind of Christian are you? And I was like, oh, this is the opportunity. Blah. And I got to just share the gospel with her and tell her about who Jesus is. And I'm a Bible kind of Christian. And uh, she's like, oh, okay, thanks for the information. You know, it's kind of like she didn't want to hear it anymore. But I realized as it was coming out of my mouth, I'm her boss, and I don't even know if I should be doing this. Oh, well, here it goes. This is This is how... We should be living life with a boldness. How do we gain boldness? By serving. Verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know. So let's stop there for a second. And I just want to tell you how much this blesses me that Paul wrote this. Because I feel like, as a Christian, I've gone through life so far saying, Lord, where do you want me now? What do you want me to do now? How do you want me to work? Where do you? And I have all these questions, right? And I, I, I wish the Lord would just reveal them to me. And I feel like sometimes I meet Christians and they know exactly what the Lord wants them to do and where they want them, how they want them to do it. And they're just firm in their foundation. And then I read this from Paul. Paul saying, hey, I have this desire to come to you. But... If the Lord delays me, whoa, Paul has the same thing I do. I have this desire to do this thing. That's okay to have. That's a blessing. The desire is the thing that we should have. If we don't have desire to, to do the things of the Lord, that's where the problem is. The problem isn't that we don't know exactly how everything's supposed to work out. The, the problem is that we don't have a desire. If we don't have a desire... We need to take that up with the Lord. We need to fix that inside of our, ourselves. We should have a desire to be these servants. Paul says, I write to you these things, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourselves in the house of God. 
Why did Paul write 1 Timothy? So we know how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. It's that simple. What is that supposed to look like? Service. We should be serving one another. We should, we should be caring about each other's needs over our own. We should be taking care of whatever can be taken care of. Coming up behind one another, bolstering each other's ministries, our own, our, bolstering each other's emotions and cares. That's how the church should look. Loving one another without anything in expectation. I write to you these things because you should know how to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God. The house is not the building. What is the house of God? The church of God. You and I, us all together. We're the house of God. We're the church of God. Then it goes on to say, the pillar and the ground of truth. Does this define our lives? Because I, I saw the head shake. I saw the head nodding when I said, yeah, we're the church. You and I, us. Are we the pillar and the ground of truth? You know, we want to claim the body. We want to claim being the church. But do we claim to be the pillar and the ground of the truth? That's a real question that, that I think we need to work through in our own minds. Is, does that define me, that I am truthful? I, I, not just truthful in the way that I live, but also truthful in, in the things of God. My life shows the truth of Jesus Christ. My life shows the change of the Holy Spirit. The pillar and the ground of the truth. Verse 16, and without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. Another mystery. Godliness revealed at one or one, one point hidden and now is revealed. What is this godliness? And remember, this is speaking in regard to leadership in the church. This is speaking in regard to servants in the church. It says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Then it goes on to say, God was manifested in the flesh. So wait, what is the mystery of godliness? How do I become more godly? How do I, how do I be more godly? James, I desire to be more godly. It's simple. Hang out with Jesus. The mystery of godliness is found in Christ, in Christ alone. There's nothing else that can make you better than you currently are. The mystery of godliness is revealed in the, the God that was manifest in flesh. God was manifest in flesh. Justified in the Spirit. Justified. And, and notice, it doesn't say justified by the Spirit. Jesus was just or righteous before he was justified in the Spirit. So he was justified. He was shown to be the manifestation of God in the, in the Spirit. When did that happen? I would say probably in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him from heaven, showing that he is the Lamb of God, the same one that John the Baptist pointed to and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one that takes away the sin of the whole world. 
justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles. Big deal at this time. Obviously, nowadays, probably, if not 99% of the church here is Gentile. Well, 99% is. So, believed on in the world and received up in glory. We see that ascension happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus was proven God by the Spirit of God, by his death, burial, and resurrection, by his miraculous signs and wonders, by what he had to say, his own testimony, God's testimony of him, while God said, this is my son in whom uh, I am well pleased, and then his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension into heaven. This is the mystery of godliness. How do I become more godly, James? Hang out with Jesus. John chapter 15. I say it in every message, I think. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you and I will produce much fruit. John chapter 15. Is that something that defines us? Boldness, godliness. Let that define you. Amen? Father God, we just thank you for another day to study your word, to grow in you. Father, I ask that your word does change us from the inside out, Father, in our actions, in our conversation. Allow us to just become servants, full-fledged servants of you and of your people. We love you. Bless our time as we fellowship, I pray. Father, watch over Will as he's at home. Just bless him. Give him a beautiful day with you. A day to just spend with you and, and seek you in this time of need. Father, I ask that you create in us an even deeper trust in you. Just to follow you with all we have. We love you. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.